Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay. I am joined by Peter Cat and Sue Grimmett, as always. Uh, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thanks, Dom. It's um, great to be here. Um, now, today we are very fortunate to have Anglican priest, First Nations man, and author of Another Time, Another Place Towards an Australian Church, Glenn Lockery joining us on the podcast. Glenn, thanks for, for dropping by On The Way. Oh, thank you very much, Dom. It's great to be here. We should say that more often. Thanks for dropping by On The Way. <laughs> that should be our introduction in yeah, future. I quite oh, like that. Um, well, Glenn, Glenn, look, just as a scope of, of today's conversation, um, you, you know, the book is titled uh, Another Time, Another Place, as I said, Towards an Australian Church. And at the start of the book, to kind of frame what this conversation is going to be about and what the book is about itself, uh, you use a pot plant analogy at the very mm. beginning of the book. I think it sets the conversation up really well, so I might just ask you if you, if you can to, to introduce us to the pot plant analogy. Oh, well, I, the, the pot plant, plant analogy was um, given to me by Reverend Diane Lingham, and, um, and she mentioned it at the Abundant Conference that we had here in Brisbane last year. And it got me thinking about the idea of um, how we hold on to things that we value and we um, become sidetracked away from the main issues that are involved. So the pot plant is basically, in, in, in that analogy, um, that it's like when you leave home, grandma gives you a, a nice little gift to take to put in your kitchen of your new flat and it's a little pot plant and it's a little plant sitting in it the pot she bought at a local op shop but it's beautiful and it's something that you you take with you for the rest of your life the, the pot always looks good but the plants never really grown or or shifted or developed or matured and it's always struggling to survive because it's a root bound inside the pot that it's sitting in and the idea is that um, the Anglican Church in particular, because we have a particular place in this country, or country's history, um, came out in, in a pot from England and, uh, and remains firmly in that pot, the pot of the, um, the Church of England, of, that, uh, of the, the BCP, of the, the liturgy and the strategies that we use for parish worship and parish organisation. And we really haven't taken the plant out of the pot and mm. placed it in the soil. We have valued the pot more than the plant. And this is, I suppose, the theme of the book, that we have not yet developed a native Australian church, a church that is connected to its Australian identity. And, I mean, I know that you do focus on the Anglican church in the book, but you this, this is a wider scope as well. I know that my Lutheran backgrounds would tell me that the Lutheran church has has the German pot that they've yes. struggled to break free from. Yes. And in fact, you do write uh, in the book that no church, even those who perceive that they have adapted to attract young people, have actually allowed the gospel to grow into an Australian native. They still use images, liturgies, practices birthed in other places, ranging from the Middle East, Europe, England, Africa, and the Protestant megachurches of the USA. So it's, it's in a sense, all of our notion of church in Australia is um, maybe similar to our notion of, of television and food. It's all imported. There's, there's not much um, much that is Australian. Is that accurate, do you think? I, I think that is very accurate, and I think that um, uh, it's a part of the neo-colonialist processes that we, we uh, live in in as a society. Um, at no point have we made an effort to make the, uh, the church 
an indigenous church, not an Aboriginal church, but a church that is indigenous of this place, rooted here, um, reflecting the things that come out of living in, in this country uh, and engaging with the environment, uh, engaging with the, uh, the culture that is embedded in the ground. We, we haven't done any of those things. And while it is, is written you know, for the Anglican Church in some senses, A, that's where I am and that's the, the bit of the church that I know a bit about, not a lot, but a bit, um, it is relevant to every other single church. Um, I have spoken to the interspiritual community and, and, and at a recent event with a group of um, Islamic people, I said to them that the, one of the big challenges for them is that they have to find a way to make their understanding of faith reverberate and grow out of what is here in Australia. And, and unless they do, all they are doing is living with a kind of reconstructive nostalgia for something that they've left behind and keeping it going here, but loving it so much that they don't want to go back to it, but they'd like to keep it here. Mm. So there's a whole lot of processes inside of that as well. So yes, so I, I think it's... And we have to be careful that we don't simply say, if we're going to make an Australian church, it has to be Aboriginal. That's not what this is about. It's about the fact that the Anglican Church, which was the first church, the church that came as part of the colonial project, has to find and 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 break open the pot itself. Um, it's interesting. I mean, I guess to use that that, that pot plant analogy, which you do explore further yeah. in the book, and and sort of uses a framing um, uh, device for for the the idea. It, when you think about it that way, you do realise how that is the church that we we have inherited, that we yes. are all living as a part of. And when you use the pot plant thinking, you do realise that for a plant to actually grow, you need to take it out of the pot, put it in the soil, yes, and let it let it actually you know, put its roots down rather than be sitting in this pot. Um, you do write as well that we are living in another place and time disconnected from the wonder and beauty of this place we call Australia. I'm just wondering, because for me, I know this is not something that had crossed my mind before reading your book, the idea that, that the church didn't have its Australian roots at yeah. this stage. And I imagine to many of our listeners, they, w- they would not have thought about this before probably. It hadn't even crossed their mind. So... From the outset, from a broader perspective, why do you think it's necessary for the church to to have uh, an Australian, find its Australian identity? I think all faith, and we take go back to um, to the beginnings of the Christian uh, experience, back to Jesus, was grounded in in the soil, the dirt, the environment in which um, he lived, he walked. He lived around, you know, around the water. He walked into the mountains. He walked the roads. He was part of the culture. He was what I would call a tribal man. He was a part of what was going on around him at all times and, and used the language and the images and the, um, the pictures that, that uh, people who lived there would go, yeah, that's right, I, I get that. Uh, much of what we do within the church and much of what we use in our language and in our liturgy are quite foreign, not at home in this place. We, you know, The way we talk about shepherds has nothing to do with how we look after sheep here. The way that we uh, are unable to engage with the local um, inhabitants um, and the way that we, we project and um, 
push our particular view of uh, religious faith without valuing the religious faith of the local people. You know, again, quite different to how Jesus mm. engaged with those people around him. You know, the Syrophoenician woman, the woman at the well, you know, and all those that he engaged with, and even even the Romans um, and, and in, in terms of some of the healing. So we, we have to find, I think it's vital that we become an Australian church, but it has to be more than just changing some of the, the window dressings. It's not just shifting Christmas to, to the winter season where it's supposed to be. Um, but it's more than that. And it's more than just making, putting Aboriginal people in leadership roles, much bigger than that. That may come later on, but in the initial stages, those in charge of the church and those who worship in the church have to come to grips with its history, its, um, its ethos, and what it means to be here in Australia. And I don't think, and to be perfectly honest, I think that's the project for the whole of Australia mm. to be... Right. It's certainly a cultural, it's yeah. the cultural shift for the whole nation, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Peter, I, I know that this is something that you've um, been passionate about in, in many ways. One of the earliest things of yours I read was talking about why you say the Commonwealth of God rather than the Kingdom of God, mm. which I imagine plays into this this space. Can you just touch on that a little bit? Sure, does. Um, yeah, I think that in every every place, the the image of the of the Kingdom should should reflect um, the the structure of the place in which it's being expressed. So. Um, king, kingdom works fine in England. Um, in Australia, where we have a commonwealth, we need to talk about the commonwealth of God, which means that, uh, and that's that's one image, because we have a commonwealth, um, because we're saying there's a better way to be a commonwealth than the one you've got. And mm. in a republic, so it should be the republic of God, so that mm. there's a better way of being a republic than the one you've got, so, mm. so that we're always... Um, always saying that there's a potential for a better expression of what we've got. And in Australia, we have to come to terms with the fact that we live in a continent of many nations rather than one, and how we're going to express that. Mm. Um, and we, we're going to have to find language that embeds us into this mm. nation. Mm. And I think that's part of the project. Um, mm. In fact, you know, I think... I th I think um, we later comers still have not really arrived in this country. Um, David Tacey in last century wrote a lot about how the, the white fellas basically sit on the edge of this mm. great nation looking out to sea mm. with their back turned to the continent. And I think, I think he was on the money because mm. there's a sense in which um, until we know how to visit the centre, and there's a bit of work going on in that, and Sue can talk to that, um, unless we know how to visit the centre and, and discover the heart of the country, we're not going to actually ever work out mm. how to really belong here. And so we've imposed ourselves on this continent and in a couple of hundred years have you know, basically trashed the joint um, compared to the original inhabitants who've managed to look after it and cultivate it, um, cultivation to which we were blind um, for 60,000 years plus. Mm. Fascinating, you know, when you, when you do say that, how lately, and it, it has felt like quite a late movement, there's been things such as the awareness of 
um, the pain that Australia Day causes and, and the desire among many to, to change that date. It's almost as though maybe at last we are starting to wake up and realise culturally what we have missed for so long. Mm-hmm. So why, why do you think we have missed it for so long? And what do you think it is now that, that parts of the country are waking up to, to realise? Oh, look, I think it's the machinery of colonisation that is at the heart of the problem here. What we're waking up to is it's all about the way we relate to each other really, mm-hmm. at, at its heart. And that's the problem when we talk about... Um, a church is a pot plant, it brought with it and still contains and still holds that same um, machinery of colonisation that's within it, you know, structures of colonisation, assumptions that are there. And while that's part of it, you know, we're we're actually just replicating the same problems. Um, And I think until we... Because we have to think about it. I really like Glenn alluding to the way Jesus spoke and related when um, he was he was encountering other people, so we're not actually trying to impose any of that. It's not the trapping. While we think we're trying to bring, you know, whether it's trappings of religion or this appear or in government in culture, uh, and not actually recognizing this is a fundamentally relational issue mm. about the way we see one another and relate to one another, um, and work out. W- where the problem is the problem, you know, mm. that the, the, the colonisation is at the heart of so many things and power. Um, until we actually address that problem, the rest is surface trimmings, I think. Um, I, I would agree with you entirely. I think the issue, um, and that's why I made the comment that we're in neo-colonial estate, not a post-colonial position, because in a post-colonial position, uh, both of the, the, the groups that were involved in the conflict prior to it get together and redevelop and redescribe together a future. That's never happened in Australia. We are in a neo-colonial space where those in the power in the colonial period remain in the power uh, now. And that's why it's important to remember this is a project that uh, the church and the people of Australia, other than the indigenous people, other than our people, have to do, have to do something about. Yeah, you, it's, it's up to you to restructure your church to pull it around drop the pot and let it crack um and then see you know how it comes back together and when it comes back together then we may have a role or a place in that but it's not our job to help you go through that process i was interested peter when you talked about a commonwealth um uh, it's like referring to jesus as an elder not as lord i don't refer to him as lord because lord carries with it the feudal implications uh, of the period in which um, it it was primarily used and we don't have lordship we have eldership and so Jesus is an elder we talk about Jesus body as being his country because Jesus carries the country in his body so when his body is broken it's his country that's broken and that's where we are in these kind of places we have to change our language but you know we can do those things I guess this book from my point of view, is an invitation, a lot like the statement from the heart, for Australia to, and the church, and the Anglican church has to lead the way because it was so heavily involved in the, in the, the genocide of our people. I think that there'd be a lot of um, people who might come against this saying, but God is not changing, you know, God, God doesn't change. We're quite clear about this, you know, and, and that, that is certainly a view of faith that is very common, that, yeah. that God is unchanging and that the narrative we've had growing up where we've gone to nativity plays and the kids have, you know, worn the, the tea towels to be the shepherds or whatever, that, that that is 
almost it's almost as though the that narrative and then the the traditions we've inherited are not expressions of the divine but are the divine itself yes, it's yeah. idolatry yeah yeah, yeah. so <laughs> so someone, idolatry so someone who said you know why does god need to adapt to this or the, the mm. this expression need to adapt to the australian landscape you know mm. surely it's all surely it's all um we, we, it's all good as it is what we have what would you say to that peter well um I, well for thinking that the trappings are, are in any way divine is idolatry um and you know I actually think that God is changing because God is relational and God's in relationship with us, a changing universe, and so God does change. Um, so I'm firmly in the process theology camp, I have to say. Um, and it, but even if you belong to the even if you belong to the camp that thinks that God doesn't change, it, you, it's easy to. I think the argument is God doesn't change, but our understanding of God changes because we only see through a mirror darkly we're always only catching a glimpse of the divine and through history we learn new stuff as we did through you know jesus taught us a whole lot of new stuff about god that we're still coming to terms with the idea of neighbor and is one that's still um challenging us so you know i think even if you believe in a god that doesn't change i think it's easy to accept that the trappings change because we learn more about that unchanging God and we certainly need to change and over the period of history we have you know we've we've confronted some really big mm. issues in the last few hundred years that we thought had a divine imprimatur you know slavery um, position of women the way we treat children uh, the way we treat people of first nations you know it's not that, you know, apartheid in South Africa mm. was based on the idea that the white people were human and the, the dark people weren't. I mean, it's, mm. you know, it was not that long ago that people were saying that you know, Africans, uh, Africans didn't have a soul. So, mm. you know, we've, we've, had to, we've had to learn some hard lessons and we've got some more hard lessons to learn in this country. And I'm glad that the disquiet is beginning to be mainstreamed. Where you know Australia Day is increasingly uncomfortable for people, mm. and I think that's really good because we now have to have a conversation about where, how are we going to celebrate mm. being Australia, and what does that look like? Well, there's a lot of questions about Australian identity that yeah, I, I think absolutely. must be explored. There's absolutely. certainly a notion in Australia that we are this laid-back, everyone-gets-a-go nation, and, and I think more and more of us are starting to feel yeah. that that's a myth. Well, it's a lie. Yeah. 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 A, fair go, a fair go for those who have a go um, is the latest iteration of that, mm. and it is a lie. Yeah. yeah look, look, Australia has, has never been a country of those loose legendary statements that we use about ourselves you know australia um you know the gallipoli legend was based on the lie of white supremacy and the need to maintain white a uh, white supreme state on in, on in australia we have treated aboriginal people um as vermin to quote william cox who built the blue mountain road 
um, and that needs to be exterminated or cleaned out. There were, we weren't real people and those kind of attitudes still continue and, and those kind of approaches still continue and it brings about things like um, the cash management card, the 2007 emergency response to Northern Territory um, and the increasing taking away of children from Aboriginal homes. So we have all of this stuff. We have told ourselves, I call it the myth of goodness. You know, we, we have this sense that we are good people, therefore good people can't do bad things. And when we are facing with the bad things that we have to talk about, we either shut down or say, no, that never happened. Um, so it's the myth of goodness that sits underneath our, our national archetype, so to speak. This is a very big question, Glenn, but have a go at it. Um, if you were speaking honestly, critically, analytically, and someone asked you, what do you think the Australian identity at the moment actually is? What words would come to mind? Because, because some, some would say there is an undercurrent of racism that people just pretend isn't there, but has almost become enshrined in our national identity, things such as, as that. I would agree entirely. With, I, I mean, racism is, is, um, is not dead. Part of what happens with neocolonialism is that the, the more overt uh, ways of, uh, of gaining power are left behind, in other words, massacres, shootings, um, war, all of those left behind, and it then becomes a more subtle uh, structure of things like closing the gap, uh, where we try to use a more subtle approach to maintain our power and our control without... um, uh, crossing the line into violence and obvious racism. Therefore, you know, the kind of racism that we have in this country now and the kind of um, uh, denial of the sovereignty of Aboriginal people as real people um, is much more subtle. For example, the, the concept of recognition in the Constitution, which is a big kind of talking point, has suddenly gone from being... Um, about the statement of the heart and and a voice for Aboriginal people, but to having a recognition in the constitution which the majority of Australians who happen to be white are comfortable with, then we shoot the treaty away from the federal government we give it to the states and no state can do a treaty with Aboriginal people because they're not a sovereign body. We have to remember Aboriginal people are sovereign people. Each Aboriginal nation is a sovereign nation and can only do deals with the primary sovereign space in Australia, which is actually the Queen, but actually the government, federal government. So we, we've shifted that away from there. Then we are, that by doing all of that, and the moment we get recognised in the Constitution, we lose our sovereignty. So we have to find ways to deal with this. That's a racism. Mm. That is a genocidal approach to the culture of our people, and it needs to be addressed. So I sort of see, if you're, you know... I mean, Australians uh, still have this sense about themselves that they are good people. And that's why recognition in the Constitution is dangerous. Once it goes up, majority of Australians will go, oh, this is a good thing to do. But I think it's also intriguing just how recently... I mean, so I was, I was in primary school in the late 90s, yeah. early 2000s, and we learned, you know, the, the Captain Cook story. And... 
not once was anything negative mentioned. It was as if these people were heroes who came and oh, yeah. and discovered Australia. And this is what, you know, less than 20 years ago that I was learning this. I don't know if the curriculum still is or if it's adapted a little bit. It but, is. But what, what, you ta- what most Australians have been taught growing up is this, this notion that white people came along, discovered Australia, discovered is the word yeah. that's used, and we're here as a result of it. it and it's, it's overshadowing so many things. Yeah, it's the, it, we have to be really aware of what actually happened there. The country was stolen. There were no people here. Therefore, there was no range for foreign frontier wars, despite what people talk about, because you can't have a frontier port war with people who don't exist. What you had when you the, 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 those processes was was a genocidal land clearing process, getting the, the the vermin off the land. So we we have this. We have to start to address all of those. And the moment we talk about sovereignty, and this is the reason why it, it never got to go when the statement of the heart went first up, is because does the Australian project actually have a legitimate sovereign right to be and exist? If we follow the law at the time and look at things like Mabo statements, one would have to say the sovereign status of Australia as a nation is questionable at the very, very least. Um, And therefore, if we recognise and maintain the sovereignty of Aboriginal nations... The whole Australian project, the whole law of Australia, the whole mm. falls into a bit of a heap. So we have. To, that's why those things have been pushed to the side. I, th- I think too in, in um, the, that danger of of a more subtle racism yeah. that you're flagging is is true. But we all, we haven't finished the process of actually looking at the overt racism either mm. and haven't looked at the atro- I like you use the word genocide and that's that's a word that many people would go oh no that didn't happen no. and that but need to believe in our own goodness is really mm. strong now we, we're preparing for a panel this evening with with glenn um and there are so many references uh that you can find that um i mean i thought i'd read a little bit but i was really shocked by what I read. And I'll just read this section here and because I, th- I think it picks up on that idea of our belief in our goodness because this was the initial conference of the Commonwealth and State Aboriginal Authorities into Aboriginal Welfare. Now, just note, note the title of Into Aboriginal Welfare. And this is just a small section of what it says. It says, Were a policy of laissez-faire followed, the Aborigines would probably be extinct in Australia within 50 years. Most of the Aboriginal women would become sterilised by gonorrhea at an early age. Many would die of disease and some of starvation. If Aborigines are protected physically and morally, before long there will be in the Northern Territory a black race already numbering about 19,000 and multiplying at a a rate far in excess of that of the whites. If we leave them alone, they will die and we shall have no problem apart from dealing with those pangs of conscience which must attend the passing of a neglected race. That's in 1937. My gosh. Yes. And that was in a conference for the... Aboriginal welfare. There you have right alongside the belief in our own goodness with terrible evil. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, and you can find examples that are over and over and over again. And it, it, it sits also in terms of this, the closing the gap kind of idea. We always want to close the gap up. We never want to close the gap down. 
we that have stole the land and the people who stole the land and have benefited from that never want to give any of that up. Aboriginal people always have to climb up. Mm. We have to you know, do the things to make things better. So closing the gap is an upward movement. So there is, again, this, this subtle racism and subtle violence against our people instead of saying, well, look, you know, you know, we've got these resources. What? How do we? How do we give up some of our entitlements so people can have can can fulfil their own identity? And I think that's a really important challenge to the church. If you sell churches, how much of that money should go to the local Aboriginal people as reparation, not as a gift? Mm. Um, you know, uh, how do you here in the cathedral on this ground um, make this place? as a gift to the Aboriginal people? How do we, we work that process? How do we that have benefited from it, you know, in Anglican clergy, you know, we most live fairly comfortable lives in fairly comfortable places. Um, how do we give up some of that comfort so that we can close the gap down a little and make it easier for people to move up? Uh, uh, Peter, I think one of the big problems with that the people keep expressing that they keep rowing up against and we certainly saw this um with when john howard was prime minister his reluctance to apologize to the stolen generation which was mirrored in you know a, a lot of uh, australian citizens this idea that i've done nothing wrong, yeah so why should i have to feel bad yeah. why should i have to apologize what have i done wrong mm. i was just born here i've just made a go of it mm. what do you say what would you say to people who think like that well, that's a, that is um, just a symptom of where we are in terms of the individualistic culture, that we don't own our story. And we are, you know, it's very hard for those of us who, who have benefited to get to the point where we acknowledge that we have benefited greatly due to the suffering of others. It's, it's one of the narratives that's beginning to be heard in many places, um, you know, Throughout the world, there are whole, whole generations who have benefited at the expense of others in you know, African slaves, Indians, Australians. Uh, and, and it's a very hard thing for us to come to terms with. So it's, it's an easy cop-out to say, well, I didn't do it and I don't have to say sorry. And yet we, we know that we actually belong to family and we belong to nation and you know Australians are very proud you know this this nation of very ungenerous which is a very ungenerous culture is very proud of itself as being generous and accepting and open and it talks about its history and the tradition of the Anzacs and stuff like that so it will own it will own the bits it wants to own and then step away from the bits it doesn't want to own. And it's a package deal. So the fact that we, we own the Anzacs, you know, I didn't go to Gallipoli, so if, if that's <laughs> going to be the argument, don't celebrate Anzac Day. Don't honour Anzac Day because you didn't, you weren't there. You know, there, some other cove mm. did that work. So, you know, if you want to accept the good, you've got to accept the bad too. It's a package deal. And we, we... We often say that we get to where we are because we're standing on the shoulders of giants. In Australia, we're standing on the corpses and often the graveyards of the people we killed to establish this nation. Mm. And as hard as that is, that is 
the only way people flourish is actually coming to terms with their story. Mm. It's the only way that people who have suffered abuse ever move on is that they accept their story and they find a place for the pain and the the damage and the suffering and only then can they embrace the future and we are a damaged damaging nation that tells itself many many lies about its generosity while we cut foreign aid because we can't afford it uh, one of the wealthiest countries in the world we are forever cutting things from the poor and the dispossessed while telling ourselves we're doing a great job mm. we're doing the same thing with climate change you know just in the last last week or so our politicians are lecturing the people in the pacific telling them that they ought to be grateful for what we're doing towards tackling climate change when everyone else knows we're doing almost nothing mm. it, the comment you made a little earlier about the fact that we're always standing on the edge looking out from australia i think that's even a bigger issue today denying all the things that you're talking about which are sitting at the centre of, of, of our country. Um, I read some last week or so that Australia Australians are the most travelled people in this present generation. Um, you know, the middle class, um, which is doing a, supposedly not doing it very well, are travelling more now than they've ever travelled before and are taking you know, one or two overseas trips every year um, because we want to get away from here. We have to go and see where everything else is. We don't want to see what is here and we don't want to live in this space. If you watch um, you know, uh, uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, everybody that wins, without exception, is planning an overseas holiday. It is how we deal with the pain that sits inside our psyche mm. um, and, and we go away from it. We don't go to it. And it's, it's, it's the issue. Um, we have convinced ourselves that nothing happened here. I, and I think the, the trying to convince ourselves uh, and, and what's deep in our psyche, our history carries such a long arm. And so this isn't about saying who are victims here. This is about saying what is the truth and looking because we're fi our, our lives at this time, we're all bound up together. How do we look at one another in the eye and say what is our truth? What actually happened here? Because we all, all of us need to come to terms with the violence of our past. And until we start telling those stories really truthfully, uh, you know, that, that we, we will be keeping on wanting to run offshore. Yeah, the, uh, look, I, right, right. That's, but that's the genuine uh, genius of the Statement of the Heart's uh, requests. It makes the statement right at the beginning, we need to be heard. If you're not heard, you don't exist. That's why we need a voice. We need you to hear what we have to say and we need you to hear us and we need you to talk to us about it. And we need you to listen. And then once we've got through that process of being heard and being listened to, we will sit to do the hard work of designing how we live together, i.e. treaty. How do we make that process? And then once we've been, have got some kind of agreement on how we will be with, together with one another, we will then move to the process of telling the truth about what really happened. You know, we often want to jump from uh, point A to point Z without doing the work in between. I was talking to a bishop recently who's 
uh, was selling, selling a building and part of the building on the side of the building was a piece of land that was uh, sacred to the local people. So he said, we'll sell everything else, but we'll give that back to the local people. And he went to the local people and said, here's the land. And they said, no, no. And he said, we need to talk about it. And I had to explain to him that the process is, yes, you will get the place where you are, can, can, can hand back that land, but you have to go through the conversation. You have to hear what is happening, You what happened. You have to listen and listen and take it. Take the language, the, the passion, the anger, work through all of that, and then get to the place where you can come to your agreement, your treaty with these people, and provide them with the process. But it's it's that's the genius of that that document. It's 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 about a long process. You know, Aboriginal people are anticipatory people. We want to work towards what is down the road, but we're not going to do it in an instantaneous process. And and that's um, that's really important to remember that you know Aboriginal people don't want anything in the constitution in a hurry until we've talked about it, until we've been heard, until people know and are able to sit and listen without going, oh, I've got to be on an aeroplane in half an hour or, you know, but that doesn't fit for my government policy. No, just sit and listen. Glenn, c- can I just, and it's shocking I have to ask you to do this, but can you explain for some, because I know there are many people who wouldn't have heard of the statement of the, okay. from the heart. It actually, I think one of, talking of recent shames of Australia, the lack of attention the statement from the heart has received to the point that, um, you know, I've discussed it with, I've, I've mentioned it to people because I remember when Sue brought it to my attention a few years ago and I shamefully hadn't heard of it. Yeah. And I went to people I know who are very deeply, consciously yeah. living people, very compassionate people. They'd never even heard of the statement yeah. from the heart. It, this is a central a central element to where Australia is at the moment and so many people don't even know about it. Yeah, It, it was a document that was produced uh, in 2017 and... Um, at the request of a, uh, a body um, started by the federal government and they asked for a consultation to be taken place with Aboriginal people to look towards what's the process to look towards recon- uh, recognition. Um, and it was still working on the basis that recognition in the constitution was the way to move forward. Well, there were 12 months of consultation consul- there were um, 12 groups of uh, Aboriginal elders and clan leaders and selected people who got together. It was a very well-developed uh, process of consultation and dialogue, and it went on for 12 months. And then they met in uh, Uluru, uh, at Uluru, and didn't actually write the document at Uluru, they simply affirmed the document that had been written as part of the other 12 processes, other 12 consultations. And it was the first time in terms of a um, constitutional issue in Australia that a group of people had unanimously, I mean, there were always people who didn't want to participate, but unanimously agreed to a set of changes and a way forward on a constitutional matter. And nobody, I think, really understands that to get people of that many different sovereign nations, autonomous nations, people who make their own decisions, to give up some of their own particular um, 
important issues or points to make sure that they got something that they felt was um, workable. It was an amazing achievement. It was incredible. And it's never been done in Australian politics in any other sphere. It's only ever been done in here by Aboriginal people. And it made these statements that it said that we, you know, Aboriginal people need a voice to Parliament. Aboriginal people need to work with um, non-Aboriginal people towards a treaty. And then they need to do do, um, truth-telling. And there's much more in the... the uh, detail of it but they're the, 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 the major things at the front and it was simply um, condemned out of hand by the Prime Minister of the time and by the leader of the opposition at the time and who said this is a third chamber of parliament which it's not never would be never could be but it's been condemned and pushed to the side it's been resurrected a little with the, with the new parliament but again as I said before they've cut the pieces up and sent them in different directions. You know, it's it's interesting, Peter, and I think this ties into to your analogy you used earlier, which is a really helpful way to understand this, of if anybody's going to heal from their personal pain, we all know this from our, our own journeys and people we see around us. They have to know their story. They have to go through, you know, that, that, that pain, that darkness. And then what comes afterwards is the, you know, to use the cruciform part and the resurrected life, the, yeah, the new healed life. Yeah. And so people, you know, I'm, I'm sure anyone listening could think if someone they know in their life who has a grief that of someone they lost or something they lost, that still every time you catch up with them, they're like, I can't believe they did that to me, that person. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, people, people can, can see this in our individual stories yes. where we know people who haven't, or maybe it's ourselves, haven't quite come to terms with what we've been through mm. and have seen how much it, it prevents us from any abundant life yeah. and everyone around is like, oh, this is a bit awkward to being around this person mm. while they're in, in this much unprocessed yeah. pain. And well, Australia yeah. is in it. Would you say Australia is that person at the moment? Indeed. Well, you know, a few podcasts ago, we looked at the cruciform life and talked about the importance of Holy Saturday as the waiting space. I think that's where Australia sits. So we're sort of in the land of the dark shadows, the dead waiting for the the uh, crucified one to come and tell us that we can actually be free from these chains and all we have to do is walk out the door because the gates are actually open and so we've got this incredible opportunity and the statement of the heart I think was the most profound gift that we have been given and we the wider Australian community the most profound gift we have been given by the first peoples of this land and I was absolutely devastated that day when Malcolm Turnbull at a doorstop interview just dismissed it out of hand and that was the end of the conversation after these amazing people generous people had produced this document that said here is the doorway to resurrection Australia here is your, your Easter is in view walk through the gates the gates the gates are now dis- debarred and we just basically, well, our leaders just basically said, no, we'd rather sit in the darkness, thank you. And I think that really points to the analogy that the, the role of the church here and the, the idea of the pot plant is something being sh- put on down, whereas we've got a way, something that's moving, active, God as verb rather than noun, that we can actually show this is we can step into this way of freedom and the church has a part to play in listening and in recognising the way that Jesus related to others, 
in his context, how we can actually live as resurrection people. We don't need to stay on Easter Saturday, that there's a way forward. Um, but that is grounded. How, how do we smash the pot? Well, this is there's, uh, the, the Christian story has, um, ha- has something to offer, not in the, the, all, all the trappings of religion or the, the pot of the Anglican Church as it's arrived here, but the Christian story has some real power when it comes to how do we live this out in a way that Jesus showed us. Look, I, I, absolutely, and I think um, using the, the, the idea that uh, Peter was just mentioning, you know, the door is open. It's still open. Yeah, it hasn't been closed from right. where we stand. Uh, but that's why I, in the book I talk about it as gently as I can without getting too much into the preachy side of the stuff to say, you know, you need to look at all of these things as a church and you need to drop the pot. You need to take the hammer to the pot. I think there's a Japanese art form, kintsugi, which is uh, repairing pot with gold, where you know you the pot is broken, you break the pot, and you might hit it with a hammer underneath a piece of cloth, and then you put it back together with a a, a special kind of glue, and at the end piece, um, the last piece of glue that goes in is a gold thread that goes around the whole pot. So the pot comes back, maybe in different shapes. There may actually be holes in the pot because bits are missing. But the whole thing is get this, this colour of a new life and the goldness and the, the sense of that resurrection into something completely different to what it was before. And I would think that's the next stage. That's what we need to be prepared to do is, you know, is our patriarchal structures as a church relevant in Australia? Short answer. No. How do we break that patriarchal structure? Is, is, is our, our liturgy that comes out of predominantly English scene relevant in Australia? Probably a short answer is no. Um, but we need, how then do we take those liturgies and rewrite them into the sense of, and don't lose anything of the essence, but make them real of the place that in which you are in. So, you know, we've done some of that with, you know, uh, women priests. We've done some of that now with our um, working with, you know, the LBGTQI community. We need to do it in a bigger scale within our own structures just so that we, we become something new but essentially attached to, to what gives us life. I think um, that that's such a key point because this, this and what you've written in the book, it's not about, um, and I hope, uh, you know, th- that you agree with these words, it's not about um, Austra- Australia's history is built on very dark things. Australians should sit and feel guilty for a bit. That's not what you're talking no. about. It's about moving towards a holistic, unified way of, of living on this land mm. together, mm. I- you know, in a way that acknowledges the sacred in this context. Uh, look... It- um, I, I sort of see, as I said before, that Aboriginal um, spirituality is an anticipatory one, looking for what's coming down the road and adjusting and ad- redesigning what we think and believe and how we act in relation to the things around us. If we didn't do that, we wouldn't have survived all the climate issues and all the environmental issues that we would have had to face over 65,000 years. Um, it is about this process of... Um, like Elizabeth Johnson, the Catholic theologian, feminist theologian, talks about, you know, 
moving towards wholeness. The whole of the you know of of uh, the universe is moving into towards wholeness. We we're moving to a place where everything is comes into balance. Balance is another important Aboriginal spiritual co- concept. Keeping things in balance. So I think this is not about feeling guilty. Guilty is a useless uh, emotion. What we have to do is go yes. And once we've said yes to the history, to our, our, uh, how we have benefited from that individually and as organisations, once well, we said yes to that, then we have the process, beginning of the process of working towards wholeness and balance and bringing each of those groups together into that one space. It becomes universe referent. And unless we start to think in those terms, we're going to be stuck with yes, but. Okay, and we we don't want to be in yes, but we don't want to go. Oh yeah, well Bruce Pascoe's right, but you know, Glenn Lockery's right, but uh, what we have to do is get to yes, and then be prepared to take the journey after that. And that's what the gift of the statement of the heart was about. It's fascinating again to use that analogy of the the person going through their own personal brokenness. How often you might say, "Do you acknowledge maybe you did the wrong thing?" And you, how often people will say, "Yes, but so did they." Or, yeah, 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 yeah. And and you can you, we all have seen this play out in our own relational lives again and again. And it's not that you want the person to feel guilty for what they've done or or anything like that. You just know that it's preventing them from living yeah. abundantly. Yeah. Uh, and and that is our nation our national situation yeah. clearly. Yes, um, you do write that to find our identity as an Australian church, there are three steps. Is is what you're in the book firstly coming to grips with the church's history in this country and coming to grips with the ethos of the space we now inhabit step two coming to grips with the language and spirituality of this context and step three coming to grips with the need to mature both as a nation and as a church growing up as a people into our own identity um if if people are listening to this you know and, and i know often at the end of podcasts i like to to move in this way is, is how can people, like in their own communities, in their own lives, be a part of, of this project? Because the, I guess the, the healing project is, is one we are all a part of. For those three steps, what, what can people do outside of thinking about it, you know? Look, I think there's, I mean, one of the things is they can take this book and use it as a study group book and begin to you know, brainstorm their own reactions and responses to it and how that works. Uh, and begin to unpack for themselves, you know, what the liturgy looks like, what their church actually looks like, their church community that they're in, uh, and in the kind of underpinnings that make it what it is. On the larger issues and to do with, you know, the church in Australia, we need to be prepared to spend some time um, reading, studying, listening to voices that unpack this bigger picture for us, having small groups, um, getting speakers in to talk to them about where it's at, um, taking the opportunity to go and hear people like you know Bruce Pascoe and others when they're in the, your area, listen to them, get to understand what they're talking about uh, and be open to the possibility of change, you know, um, and be open to the possibility of doing something different to make your church different. You know, at St Oswald's, and, and, and when I went to St Oswald's, it was a an archety- archetypal middle-class white Anglo-Saxon church. 
and essentially it probably still is. Um, but in going there, we we have, you know, he was an Aboriginal priest in what would be seen as a bastion of of whiteness. You know, and it's not a negative, it's not a, a criticism, it's just the way it was. And so we began the process of thinking about language. We, we looked at how can we use some of our land to make ourselves, um, um, to remember what happened in Australia. So we have a reconciliation garden on the local tennis court. Uh, we use that garden to bring children in from schools in the local neighbourhood and community groups and scouts and everything else. And we do incursions and excursions using that garden where we, we educate them about the history of the country and, and, and Aboriginal spirituality, etc. We developed a social justice group that took a lot of these things on. We changed some of our liturgy to put in Indigenous language in it based on um, uh, what we already have, but adjusting all of that we um we've brought in into our community a large number of um we sought volunteers and this is where god's always a bit of a joker we we sought volunteers to help us run all these programs and the only people who came to run these programs were indian hindus bangladeshi muslim um, vietnamese and japanese buddhists um, all practicing in their own cultures and they wanted to come and help us run these projects in an Anglican church with an Aboriginal priest. And uh, I said, yeah, come on board. And these people are now running these programs, making these things happen and been, been deeply and well su uh, supported and accepted. And it's changing the way our church begins to look and to be and reflects the kind of change in our country. It's not about being multi-faith, it's being about interspiritual. How do we re, you know, value the interspirituality? Australia's always been interspiritual. You know, we had 300 language groups. 300 language groups then means we had 300 different forms of spirituality, although they followed some... Mm. some but they all were different. We've always been interspiritual. We've never, as a, as a place, been anything else but, you know... So that's the way that we've worked at it at St Oswald's. We've talked about it and talked about it and talked about it and allowing it to, to grow and to become. And I noticed when I wasn't there over NADOC week, um, the, the gentleman who's running, his Indian Hindu, who's running the Aboriginal Education Program, which is an interesting connection, um, had a group. Over half our congregation went to a group to watch a movie to do with Aboriginal matters and to take part in it. And that was nothing to do with me, that was to do with that group. So those kind of things can begin to happen. You just simply have to start to talk about it and talk about it and ask questions, gather information, be open. Mm. And I suppose what, what I picked up at the end of reading the book was just how much there is to be gained by doing this how you know this isn't like a, a requirement of this must be done if you know we're going to be good people but actually this the, the opportunity of 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 a new way of being that this could move us into um is profound i mean on, on so many fronts i mean even just so from a base level of understanding 
the Bible or scripture mm. in a different mm. way. Yes. I do know years ago, a youth pastor of mine, instead of telling the story of the Good Samaritan, told the story of the Good New South Wales supporter. Do you know what I mean? Which to a, to a Queensland audience, the idea of a Good New South Wales supporter is maybe as offensive as a Good Samaritan was to <laughs> Jesus' context. Perhaps... We still suffer from separation anxiety. <laughs> we, we do, but... but what 150... But, but 160 it, years. Yeah, no, what yeah. you're saying is... Yeah, yeah absolutely right. I, I get exactly what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, yeah, using the Australian context yeah. to actually understand this using isn't some story. theoretical yeah. idea, mm. but, the, but this is actually something to engage with. And But that's at the base level. On so many deeper levels, mm. the things to be gained here... And I know, Sue, you spent some time in retreat at the centre of Australia last year... Mm. Um, you know, you, you didn't do what many do, the, the, you know, the hop on the plane and go overseas. Not that you don't do that, but you did go to the centre where very few Australians, white Australians have gone. And I feel like, it, talking to you afterwards, you found engaging with this country on a deep level at the centre of the country quite a, a profoundly... Would profound be the word you use, just a profound experience? Oh, look, it was profound. And, and, and that was my... To my shame, really, it was my first visit um, to the centre. And it, but it was, it's what it gives you, as you say. It's, it's the gift that you can see, see in different ways and, being, and just spending time on the ground is really... It, this, is, this is slow work and uh, the beauty of something like a retreat is that it is very slow work and to engage with with people and engage with country in a slow way was an incredible gift to me. Uh, and I think that's the important process. Many Australians probably do go to the centre but they go as tourists and that's a different dynamic. You need to be able to go to the centre and, 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 and find the way to to give it time. It's a slow process. Lots of people say to me that, you know, can you teach me how to do deep listening and I go... I'm sorry, you've left it too late. It's taken us 65,000 years, okay? It's going to take you quite a long time <laughs> because it's a process of being Aboriginal, not a process of uh, learning a practice. It is... It, it, the thing about this... Um, uh, at the end of the book that you were talking about a few moments ago, what we have to be prepared to do if we're going to drop the pot is we have to have no expectations of what the outcome is going to be. We have to step into that Friday, Saturday experience in a different concept, Easter Saturday experience, and be prepared to sit, to wait, and to be surprised by, and, and perhaps scared by what comes out of that process and having to work through that. And, and, and those, all those deep levels that you were talking about, we have to, you know, we can't go into this with saying, well, here's the way things we want to achieve in a good white person's way of approach. You know, we're going to do it in, a, in one uh, parliamentary sitting and by then we're going to have this people, this thing and this thing and this thing. No, we just drop the pot. Mm-hmm. And then we have to... And, and I was kind of hoping that under the, after the Royal Commission into, into Institutional Child uh, Abuse that we may have dropped the pot, but the pot's still been rescued and we put in a whole lot of policies and things to protect ourselves even further and without dropping it and letting it scatter and go around and pick up the pieces and grab the gold and see what we end up with Mm. that's a beautiful way to end thank you so much glenn it's been a treat having you on the podcast thank you and we will be back with another episode of the on the way podcast shortly